0: We will continue our series this morning in Matthew chapter 5. I'm losing my voice. I hope that you can hear me. Um, Especially want to welcome those of you that are visiting and some of you that we haven't seen for a while and welcome back. And continue in this series on the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus teaching to his disciples in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Today we'll be looking at this text of verses 17 through 20 when Jesus deals with the law. And I want to open with this story of someone who used to come to our church. And so we were standing in the kitchen talking theology. And the question took us into the Old Testament and the law and the covenant that God made with his people, Israel. And during the conversation, he threw out this zinger to me. Well, Jesus abolished the law anyway. I said, oh, where did you hear that? He said, well, it's in the Bible. I said, oh, where, where would I find that in the Bible? And he said, I don't know. I haven't been to seminary like you. But it's in there. Jesus abolished the law. And I said, well, you know, actually, in Matthew five, it says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to, f- to fulfill them. And he said, oh, don't start getting picky with me. It got a little intense. Actually, there was some cursing going on. Not not for me, of course. I'm a pastor. But I started to feel a little threatened. And as he insulted me and made his way towards the front doors of the church, the door was locked and he started fumbling with the lock and couldn't get open. He said, let me out of here. I said, I'm not I'm not holding you here. Here, I'll open it for you. And he threw himself out of the church. It was a strange event of how someone, I think, embodied what many of us feel that when we start talking about the law, the law of God, when we meet the law of God, we feel trapped. We feel like we're in a bad debate. We feel like we just want to get out as quickly as we can. And we're on lockdown. We can't escape our sins and the the honesty that the law brings. We can't escape our anger, our lust, our greed, our pride. And the law just won't seem to let us go. And so I think it's helpful to look at this question of how does the law of God relate to me as a Christian? Or maybe if you're not a believer in Christ, how does it relate to you? And is it still relevant to look into the Old Testament law of God and Say, what does it mean? Am I still bound to it? What happens when I break it? How will I find the power that I need to keep it? We often don't feel very comfortable when we talk about the law. Like one of my little girls that says, when I put a jacket on her that's the perfect size, it doesn't fit. It's too tight. And she starts screaming and crying. It's perfect. There's nothing wrong with the jacket. You're just, well, you're just a little girl. And you don't understand (laughs) one day you'll appreciate what you have. And that's kind of how we feel with the law. It's perfect. It just it's exactly what we need. And yet we say, I don't like it. It binds me. It constricts me. It's too much. Romans seven takes it a step further. When Paul writes to the church in Rome, he says some of these laws are ancient and they seem irrelevant. But the problem with most of the laws that we are dealing with today are that we just can't seem to do them. They're just too hard. And Romans 7 says that's because sin has hijacked the law. Sin threw God, as it were, out of our lives and said, let me drive this thing. And sin takes the law and runs over us with it like a car running us over in the street. Paul says sin took the law, misused it and killed us with the very law that God gave us for our good. See, the sin, sin is the culprit, not God and not the law. The law, Romans 7 says, is, I quote, holy, righteous, and good. Paul says the law is spiritual, and he says, I delight in my inner being in the law of God. Repeat after me. The law is holy, righteous, and good. The law is holy, righteous, and good. I hope that you'll remember that. We'll say it a few more times, but today we're looking at the law of God, which is good. And Jesus has something to say about this to people like us who are not very holy, who are far from righteous, and who are up to no good most of the time. And even though we want to do good, we can't seem to. So let's look at Jesus' teaching for Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18 first. The first thing that we'll see is that this is an everlasting law. And the question is, if Jesus fulfilled this law, do I have to? It's an everlasting law because Jesus says to us, I've not come to abolish the law of prophets, but fulfill them. And truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, when Jesus says, truly, I say to you, that's the Hebrew word, amen. Amen, I say to you. What he's doing is he's doing what we do at the end of our prayer, but he's saying that before he begins speaking. Because at the end of our prayers, we say, God, I'm sending it up. Would you please answer it? I hope that you will. And amen says, I believe that you will. What Jesus does at the beginning of his words, is he says, Amen. I say to you, that means this is as sure as done. This is eternal truth. And I'm telling you that the law of God, he says, will not pass away. He says not even one little iota. Now, that's not something that we may know exactly what it is, but you've heard people talk about iotas before, right? Everybody's heard of the iota, but what exactly is it? Well, it's just a little tiny mark on a Hebrew letter that makes the R letter different from the D letter. It's kind of like the difference between an O and a Q in English. It's just that little line. And he says not even a little line will pass away from the law of God. And not even a little dot. Not even the smallest marking on a Hebrew vowel will pass away. It's all going to be fulfilled and accomplished. And then he goes on to say, and you need to start... Fulfilling the law, too, in your own right. Christ came, he says, to be the light of the world. And last week we looked at how we are the light of the world. And in the previous passage from what we just read, Jesus says, you're the light of the world, so let your light shine so that people might see your good works and glorify your Father. What we're talking about today is how we go about being light, how we go about doing good deeds that will bring glory to God. It's by keeping the law. That's how we know what good deeds are. That's how people see what light is. It's by us acting like God has designed us to act. Christ came to fulfill and accomplish the law and the prophets. All of them, he says. And really what that means is he came to fulfill all the Old Testament. Law and prophets. It's just a shorthand way for Jesus or a Jewish person to say the Hebrew Bible, the, the covenant that God made with us, the scriptures he's given us. The law and the prophets are like bookends and all the books in the middle are included here. Jesus says, it's all about me and I've come to fulfill them. <clears throat> Jesus says, in his essence, I'm the living, breathing illustration of God's law. Remember what John says in his first chapter of his gospel. The word became what? I'm going to ask you guys to talk a lot so I don't have to talk as much today. <clears throat> the word became what? Bless. And he made his dwelling among us. This is basically telling us that Jesus says, God's law became flesh. And here I am to show you that I fulfilled it and I will show you how to fulfill it yourselves. The law became flesh. From sunrise to the time Jesus laid his head on his pillow at night, he was walking and talking, living the law of God. Jesus wore the law very comfortably. He never said, it's too tight. It doesn't fit. I don't like it. It was the perfect size for him. He was the giver of the law and the fulfiller of the law as well. Jesus embodied and obeyed the law perfectly. So unlike us. So unlike us. Repeat after me. The law is holy, righteous, and good. The law is holy, righteous, and good. But my friends, we are not. Jesus says, I kept the law, but you, you've disregarded it. You've ignored it. You've broken it. And that's what sin is, breaking the law of God. 1 John 3 says sin is a transgression of God's law. You can't just say, well, it's forgetting something about God or just making a mistake. It's, It's actually breaking the things God's told you to do or not to do. And if we don't understand the law of God, then we'll really never understand the cross of Christ. The law of God, when we break it. Is why Jesus came to die on the cross. If we say we love the cross. We want more of the cross. And it's true meaning in our lives. But we say I don't really want to think about the law. I don't want to really read any books on the law. I don't want to read any of the Bible books that talk about law. Then you're really not going to understand the depths of God's love for you. That he showed you at the cross. Have you ever read a book on the law of God. Besides the Bible. Have you ever read a book about the laws. There are plenty of them out there. You've probably read a book on the cross at some point, I would imagine, or about the grace of God or about how to live a good Christian life. But have you ever read about the foundation of God's very character that he's revealed to his people and said, this is what's right with me. And it shows you what's wrong with you. And now to really understand the cross, go deeper and deeper into the law and you'll begin to get it more and more. Because on the cross, Jesus, who obeyed God's law perfectly, took all of our penalty for breaking the law of God. So free, freely and frequently. It was the penalty of lawbreakers that Jesus bore himself. Imagine how much we owe to God. He's given us everything life, breath, every good thing we have comes from God. And yet we daily break his law, we daily break his commandments. And we owe him obedience because we're his creatures. But when we break his commandments, we also owe him for what we've broken, we owe a debt. And so imagine if we were driving the speed limit, we're not breaking the law. But as soon as we break the law, we're going to owe something to somebody, If, especially in Chicago. When that flashbulb goes off, oh, you're a goner. I've tried my best to outrun the flashbulb, but it doesn't work. It only goes off more. <laughs> if you say, I won't pay my property taxes, well, the city of Chicago says you owe us the money. You already owe us something. It's just because you live on this land, you must pay Now, when you don't pay, guess what? There's a penalty. You pay even more. See, we owe God everything because he's given us everything. But when we say, forget you, I don't want to obey you. He says, then there's a penalty. You'll pay even more. And what Jesus did is he he did both for us. He obeyed perfectly and then he paid the penalty that we alone owed. Jesus lived by the law. He died by the law all for us. So what does that mean for us? If we enter into the grace of God through Jesus Christ, who, through his law-keeping obedience and law-satisfying death, are we off the hook then? We say, well, hey, he took care of the law. I'm good. I don't need to think about the law or do it. Well, yes and no. Yes and no. Jesus said, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. That means that some laws are no longer necessary for us to fulfill. But it means that other laws, he has shown us exactly what it looks like to follow that law, and he gives us the power to do it. So let's look now at what are the laws we don't have to fulfill and what are the laws that we do have to fulfill. And excuse me again, I'm not going through puberty if you're visiting, but my voice is about to leave me. So pray for me as we continue. There are three categories that God gives us of the law in the Bible. The first is the ceremonial. Ceremonial. You know, ceremonies, pageantry, rituals, priests, sacrifices, and temple. That's really how you can sum up the ceremonial law. Now, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament shows us convincingly that Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. He was the great priest. He was the great temple where God's very presence dwelt. And he was the final sacrifice, substituting his own life for our sins. There's the second category of law, the civil law, the civil law. That means the ways that Jewish people were to live every single day, the way that they wore their hair, the clothes they wore, the food they ate. This is Civil law: how you owe money to someone and how you have to pay that money, how you should forgive someone, the daily routine of your life—all regulated, regulated by the Old Testament civil law. Jesus declared to us that Israel was no longer the exclusive place where God's kingdom would dwell, but that all nations and all cultures would now be entering into this great grace of God. And so He says, "This civil law." that was meant for Israel in that geographical land at that time for those particular people of that ethnicity it's no longer valid for people of all nations there's a whole new system in place and the third category of the law and you're thinking well that was really a quick flyover and we just skimmed over in one minute literally some really really deep things the ceremonial law of the Old Testament and the civil law don't worry we'll look at that more in detail next week we'll spend some time looking at each of those next week but today we're spending most of our time in this third category of the law The moral law. This is the one that we're still obligated to keep. You're not supposed to go to a priest anymore besides Jesus. You're not supposed to build a temple and offer sacrifices in it. You don't need to cut your hair a certain way or wear certain clothes to be accepted by God or to be living truly according to the law if you're a Christian. But this third category, pay attention here. This is what God says you're still obligated to do. And it will be for your life and your joy if you do it. The moral law could be summed up simply by saying, think of the Ten Commandments. That's really the summary of the moral law or what Jesus said in Matthew right here in this gospel. There's two ways you could summarize the law. What are they? Talk for me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And then what's the second? Love your neighbor, Love your neighbor as yourself. You've heard that before, and that's the summary. It's the Ten Commandments summed up. The first four commandments are about loving God. The the next six commandments are about loving your neighbor. Now, let me see. Ben, can you name the Ten Commandments for me in order? No, just kidding. He can. That's good. Can anybody in here truly say, I can name every one of the Ten Commandments right now? In order. I'm sure some of you can. Thank you. I'm glad you can. Some of you would struggle with that. I'm not going to put you on the spot. But what I think is a little bit funny is when I meet people who say, I am a good person. I keep God's law. I do what God wants me to do. And I say, well, what does he want you to do? Well, you know, don't murder. Check that one off. Well, way to go. Pin a medal on your chest. Pat you on the back because you didn't murder anybody. Good job. Anything else that he, you think he might possibly want you to do besides not murder everybody? Well, something about, like, I don't know, not sabbacating or something? That's like, that's the Sabbath, not sabbacating. I don't know what... What you're talking about, adulterizing? I'm not sure what that exactly means, but adultery, yes. They'll get two or three, and then they get stuck. And the question is, how do you really believe that you're doing what God wants you to, that you're on good terms with God if you don't even know what he wants you to do? You don't even know the law. The the basic ones, the ten, those are easy. You know, he gave you ten fingers, it's very easy to memorize those laws. There's songs out there, and kids can learn it. It's very simple. Have no other gods before me, you know? Don't make idols of me, don't take my name in vain. Worship me on the Sabbath and rest He says, honor your father and mother, don't murder people, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie and don't covet. See how easy it is? You can learn those. Can you do them? That's a little harder. It's a little harder. Jesus, though, says, I have come to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. Jesus is the personal face of the Ten Commandments, which were written in stone. He is the flesh and blood embodiment of God's law. How is that? Well, just take a couple, for example. Have no other gods before me. Jesus says, Easy. I'm the Son of God. Check that one off. Do not make any false images of God. Hebrews 1 says, Jesus is the exact representation, the very image of God's being. Okay, Jesus fulfilled that one. How about remember the Sabbath dates for worship and rest? Jesus says to people that worship Him, Yes, that's right, I am Lord. And He says, Come to me and I will give you rest. Do not murder. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. Jesus embodies every one of the moral laws of God for us. We can't keep these, but he does it for us. But the law still has something to say to us. In actuality, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and following, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus just taking the law of God, chopping it up for us, expounding it, saying, here, this is how you obey it. This is what it really means. I'm validating it, and I'm driving it deeper into your understanding and into your heart. This is the law of God, he says. I fulfilled it, and now I want you to do it, this moral law. Paul said in in the letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, verses 8-11, through he says, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So you can use it lawfully, or you can use it unlawfully. The law is good in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. See, there's no... No tension here, no contradiction between law and gospel. Law and grace. It's one package. God gave both. He's the author of the law and he's the author of grace for lawbreakers to still have a relationship with Him. Paul says the law is good. It's in accordance with the gospel of God's glorious grace, his blessedness that he offers to anyone who would come to him. And what Paul does in 1 Timothy 1, between verses 8 and 10, there's a sandwich there that tells us all the Ten Commandments. If you go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, you won't actually see them listed exactly as it's written in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 5 or in Exodus chapter 20. But you'll see 10 lists that correspond roughly in a paraphrase to the Ten Commandments. Paul's saying this is good stuff, and you should do it. You should keep it, and you should do it lawfully, not unlawfully. We'll get to that in a second. Repeat after me. The law is holy, righteous, and good. The law is holy, and good. The law is like a mirror. <laughs> mirrors can be useful. It's okay. Some of you have mirrors on your smartphones. I just saw that the other day for the first time. It was pretty amazing. Somebody was like staring at his smartphone. I was like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm, I'm checking my teeth. you know. I'm checking my eyebrows. He said, it's kind of cool. You can sit on the bus and they can like look at people behind you, and they think you're looking at your phone, but you're actually looking at them. <laughs> it's amazing. Mirrors are pretty wonderful things. What do we use mirrors for? To find out what's wrong with us, right? So that we can fix it. And that's why God gave us the law. This is a mirror. Here it is. First, hold it upward so that it reflects my character. You see how I am when you look at the law. It's a reflection of God's character. I'm good. I'm a life-giving God. I don't lie. I want you to tell the truth, too. I want you not to murder people. See, God is reflected in the law. Then he says, turn it to yourself. Not so good anymore. It's still a reflection, but now the reflection you see is someone that fails to do the law, that falls short of the law. But that's OK, because he wants you to turn the law back to its proper end, which is Jesus Christ. He says, let the law lead you back to me so that I can fix you up, so I can redeem you, help you, heal you, forgive you. Jesus has given us the law of God. He's fulfilled the law of God for us so that when we see how we fall short and we see his utter perfection, we will run back to him. In the letter to the Galatians, Paul says the law is like a schoolmaster. You know, schoolmasters who grab little kids by the ear and like drag them down the sidewalk and say, get back into school. You can't skip class today. Or, you know, they hit you with a ruler and say, wake up. It's time to learn your your homework. This is what the law is. It's a schoolmaster. Jesus has given us the law of God. And it leads us back to him. Second point here of the sermon. Verse 20. I'm skipping verse 19 for now. We'll get back to it. Verse 20. Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is uh, concerning to me. What does Jesus mean? Are you concerned as well? Unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Not going to happen. So we've got to get a few things straight. First, who are the scribes and Pharisees and can I outdo them? Because if I can't be as good as them, then I'm a goner. Okay? Or, secondly, what does it mean, once I get to know them, that I have to exceed their level of righteousness that they set? Well, who are the, the scribes and Pharisees? Let's look at that. Pharisees and scribes were the religious leaders of the day. Pharisees were experts in taking the laws and embellishing them, making more laws out of them, and actually doing them. They really were like the morality police. They went around trying to keep themselves in check and trying to keep everybody else in check. They had a big job to do. And they were not just the police, they were the judge and the jury as well. Ah, I caught you in a sin. Now you're going to pay the price. Now I'm going to judge you. Sorry that I pointed at you, Soren. I wasn't really thinking about you in particular. But this is what they did. They went around exegeting the law, bringing out the meaning of the laws for what they thought it was. Experts doing that, but they were really, really bad. In their relationships with other people. See, what happened is they got too concerned about the law at the expense of caring for people. They were so worried about the law that they forgot to care about the people that the law was meant for. I'm not saying you can't meditate too much on the law. You you should take the law seriously. But what I'm saying is they, they worried too much about what other people thought in their law keeping. That they harmed the very people the law was intended to help. The Pharisees, that's who they were. The scribes, they were the ones that wrote out the law. They copied the law of God. They they copied it over and over. They studied it. They were like lawyers who knew it inside and out. They were meticulous and careful in copying the law and in trying to live it. And the scribes and Pharisees traditionally counted 613 laws in the Bible. 246 positive commandments. Thou shalt do this. 365. Negative prohibitions. Do not do this. Thou shalt not. So, one for every day of the year, they said. One thing you shouldn't do for every day of the year. 613 total. And the Pharisees were respected because some of them, like the Apostle Paul, could say things like, I've kept the whole law. I figured out a way to do it. I keep every one of them. Down to that last jot and tittle. That last little dot on those Hebrew letters that we talked about. Now, granted, These guys were trying really, really hard, but Jesus had some really, really harsh words for them, and that's why we need to figure out what were they doing wrong and how can we do better. Matthew chapter 23, if you flip there with me, we're going to spend a few minutes in Matthew chapter 23 looking at the Pharisees and scribes' rap sheet. I know some of you haven't been locked up before, you haven't even been arrested, so I'll just tell you what that means. It's like the record of your crimes, okay? Some of you have a long rap sheet, you know exactly what I mean. Some of you... You've been a good Pharisee and you've kept the law really well, but that's okay. You're still a sinner, too. This is the the unlawful use of the law. Jesus explains to us now, here's what not to do before the law of God. This is what the Pharisees and scribes did. Let's start in verse 2. Jesus says the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. That means they're so important. They're in the seat of authority. They're the teachers of the law. Verse 3, they practice and observe. Oh, so practice and observe whatever they tell you. See, they're, they're telling you good things, but he says, not what they do. Don't do what they do, for they preach, but they do not practice. Or as we would often say, what? They don't practice what they preach. And that's usually what we call a hypocrite. That's not exactly what Jesus calls a hypocrite. We'll see that in a minute. But he says, hey, listen to them. They're teaching you the law, but don't do what they're doing. Verse four, what are they doing? They're tying up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they're laying them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They won't even lift a finger to help you do the very things they're loading on you saying, do this, do that. Here's the rules. Here's the regulations. And I'm not I'm just going to sit back and watch. And I'm going to laugh when you don't get it right. And I'm going to make fun of you. I'm going to judge you. I'm going to gossip about you. I'm going to feel better about myself when I see how much you're struggling to do the things that I've told you to do, and yet I'm not willing to help one bit. I've seen this in churches. I've seen this in our own church in some ways. It's easier to see it in other churches. That's the good Pharisee in me. It's easier to find fault with other churches. I think our church is pretty great. It's got its faults and its problems, and most of those come because of you. But I think our church is pretty great overall. And so when I look at other churches, I see things like, People come into the doors of the church, sometimes they join our church, sometimes they just pass through and tell me stories of other churches, and they say things like, I gave everything to that church. I joined, I paid tithes, I did this, I did that, and when I went to ask them for help when my electricity was shut off, or I ran out of food, or I was living literally in my car because I didn't have a house, you know what they said to me? They said, sorry, did you do this? Take the membership class. Yes, I did that. Did you do this? Sign up for the financial readiness class. Yes, I did that. Okay, did you go through our counseling program? No, not yet. Well, that's what you need to do. Six weeks long. Come back to us in six weeks, and then we'll talk about giving you a small loan. In six weeks, I've been evicted. I'm living on the streets. I mean, this is how some churches treat their members. Give, 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 but don't ask me to lift a finger to help you. I think it's horrendous. People in our own church say things like, this church needs a change. We need to change this. We need to change that. We need to change the pastor, his tie, his shirt, whatever it is. His preacher, his sermons are too long. All this. Okay, well, what are you going to do about it? Do you want to come preach? Do you want to set up the chairs? Do you want to make the lunch? Do you want to, you know, do children's church? Are you willing to help? The Pharisee says, do this, do that. Nothing's right. Nothing's good. But it's all your fault. I'm not willing to help. I hope that we're not creating burdens for people like the Pharisees. I hope that rather we'll take Jesus commandment when he said, come to me and find rest because my law and my commandment is light and easy and it will unburden you it will free you and liberate you. That's how we should be treating each other. Am I teaching you the law? And are we speaking about the law of God in such a way that we help to free one another for true life and for true service? Let's skip down to verse 13 in Matthew chapter 23. Jesus continues to say, woe to you. That means watch out, you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. There's where he calls them a hypocrite for you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. He says. Watch out because you tell people, come on in, become a Jew, become a Christian, come to our church. We have the best thing going. Come in here. And as soon as they walk in the doors, what happens? No one talks to them. They talk about them. Did you see what she was wearing? Did you hear what he said? Bad theology, bad smell, bad personality, don't like to be around them. Come on in, come on in. And we we say, come on in, and we shut the door as soon as they come and say, we really don't want to be a part of your life. Is that your tendency? Is that our tendency? I've seen that in many churches. We say, oh, all are welcome here. Saved by grace, God will welcome all and save all if you just simply come to him. He's, he's so loving. And then we start saying, but you have to do this and you have to do that and you have to do this or else I'm not going to really want to hang out with you. I'm not going to be your friend. I'm not going to forgive you. I'm not going to show you love. I'm not going to give you a place right next to me at the table. We say all these things and then we shut the door on people so quickly. Jesus is saying, don't do that. Don't be a Pharisee. Open the door wide. Don't burden people. Honor them. Love them. He says in verse 23, there's another problem. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe. tithing is giving 10%. We usually think about money, but what they were giving was they were tithing mint. So they were giving like one out of 10 Tic Tacs, you know. Here's a Tic Tac for you, God, and here's nine for me. Here's Here's a bag of Lipton tea for the church kitchen, and I'll keep the other nine. I've done my job. I'm off the hook. I'm giving you a little dill, you know, a little seasoning, a little salt and pepper. You know, take a little packet of your salt and pepper from McDonald's breakfast that you had. You bring a couple, drop it in the church basket over there so we can have salt and pepper for lunch. You say, I'm off. I've done my duty. I've done all these little things. I've thought of every little way that I can please God. I give my 10% regularly. I read my Bible. I memorize scripture. I do this. I do that. And then he says, but what about the weightier matters of the law? What about the heavy things, not the little things? You know, don't worry about the little things. That's fine. If you want to do the little things, great. But just don't forget the weightier matters, the heavier matters. Justice, mercy, faithfulness, that's heavy. Are you living a just life? Are you living a life that says, you know what, God? I will share freely, mercifully, humbly with the people around me. You've been so generous to me. I'm not just going to give you a little sprinkle of salt or pepper or mint or dill. I'm going to give you, through giving to other people, I'm going to give you all that I have. I'm going to share profusely, generously my life with the needy, the poor, the lonely, the hurting. He says, these are the things that you should not have neglected. Mercy, faithfulness. Are you saying, you know what? I look really good on the outside. People see me. Doing these little things, these little religious things. But they see me living a faithful life. Faithfulness, he says. Regularly walking in the ways of God. I mean, I don't have to tell you all the details of what it means to be a faithful person. You know, how you use your body, how you use your money, how you use your time. God says you're a steward. Start getting the weight of this. And don't be a Pharisee and think you've got it covered just because you did something on the outside, externally. Two weeks ago, a visitor came into our church during our uh, Y-Vibe, our youth tutoring time and uh, Bible study time, and we were just about to start the Bible study, and she came in, and usually I don't let people just come right in because we have all these kids in here, and we're trying to watch out for the kids and protect them. And so I said, hey, uh, how can I help you? And just got a minute before we start, so you'll have to you know, be on your way out pretty soon. And she said, well, um, you know, I'm just coming to spread the good news that um, you know, if you smile— if you smile, that, that really shows you're a Christian. And if you don't smile, it means that you're either not saved or there's something defective in your salvation. And I said, what? Can you say that again? Like if, if you're not smiling, there's something defective in your salvation? Is that what you just said? Yes. And there were several of us that were like Pharisees, you know, just jumped right on her. And like, little, like little piranhas. We smell blood. We just went right to her like, are you kidding me? This is bad theology. I never read anything in my Bible like that. Okay, let me test you on this. All right. We've got Jeremy and his wife who are down in Birmingham because their three-year-old little nephew just died this week. Are you telling me that if he's not smiling right now, his salvation is defective? Is that what you're telling me? She said, well, yes, actually, that's true. Are you kidding me? Are you telling me that Martel, whose three-month-old little cousin just died of a heart attack last week, if his mother's not smiling while she holds her dead child, that there's something defective in her salvation? Are you telling me that? Yes, I mean, I'm not saying she has to smile immediately, but the smile will come. It will if you give her a big hug and say, Jesus loves you, the smile will come. You Pharisee, get out of this church. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. That's wrong. That's Pharisaical. Is that okay if I say she's a Pharisee? Get out of our church? Is that okay? Would you support me in that? In running her out and saying, that is not welcome here. We don't treat people like that. Our superficial Christianity, no, no, it's deeper, it's weightier. It's about mercy to hurting people, justice, doing what's right, being faithful, not just doing what looks good on the outside. Okay. Back to the text. Here we go. Verse 24. He says, You're blind guides. You're, you Pharisees are blind guides. Straining out a gnat, you know, a little bzzz. Oh, I found a gnat in the food, I'm going to take that out. But then I'm gonna slip a camel in there, and you're gonna to have to swallow that hole. I mean, Jesus kind of funny guy sometimes. He says, You take a gnat, you find it, and you say, Waiter, there's a gnat in my drink. But then he brings you a big camel on a plate and he says, Okay, eat this hole, just swallow it down. First the head and the long neck, then the hump, gulp, then the next hump, gulp. Gossip, greed, lust, anger. Just all these huge sins, you're just you're just living them, swallowing them, breathing them, and you're so concerned about the minute little gnats in your life. He says blind guides. You're blind and you're trying to lead people around, saying, Follow me this way, I'll show you where to go. And you're tripping over yourself. You don't even know where you're going. So many people come into your life and mind, and say, let me show you how to do this. Let me show you the right way. Let me give you some advice. And you look at them and you say, why should I take advice from you? You're really messed up. And then they look at you and you say, well, I believe in Jesus and I'm trying to follow the law of God. And they look at you and, and they might say the same thing. Why should I follow you? It's a very good question to ask yourself. Am I being a blind guide? Do I have anything to offer? Am I really being a light or am I just groping in darkness? Some of you are afraid and just not sharing the gospel with people. You're just saying, I just don't want to be a light because I just don't feel very bright. I feel flickering and dim and weak. Okay? Come back to the law of God. Come back to the face of Jesus Christ who fully embodies it. Come back and he'll take you. He'll show you how to live a faithful life so that you'll be excited again and full of joy. Then there's verses 25 through 28. Here's where he really starts going off on the hypocrites. Woe to you, Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now, this is what a hypocrite really means. He's going to tell us right now, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. So he's saying, you look really good on the outside, squeaky clean, inside, disgusting. Can't even talk about it. Too shameful. What would they think if you told what you really were thinking and what you really have done? Verse 26, you blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may be clean also. Verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which hourly appear beautiful, but within, full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. It says, hourly you appear righteous to others, but within, you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Here's what a hypocrite is. If someone calls you a hypocrite, nine times out of ten, you can correct them and say, nah, I'm not a hypocrite, because that's not what Jesus meant. You can say, no, no, hypocrite is not when you don't practice what you preach. I mean, nobody practices what they preach. All of us are hypocrites. Like You all have standards. You all know what's right and wrong, and nobody actually keeps their own standards. But here's what a hypocrite is. When you try to look so good on the outside, knowing what's really going on on the inside, big smile, big smile, all the right religious words, and yet on the inside, just so messed up. He says, just be honest. I'd much rather see a messed up person come and just say, I messed up, please help, than to pretend that you're someone you're not. Being a hypocrite is doing good things to be seen by other people. Now, I'm not much into acronyms or like cheesy acronyms, but here's a cheesy acronym for you. It was like a revelation yesterday. I figured I have to use it. Jesus says these people do their good works to be seen by men. They're TBS Christians. TBS Christians, to be seen Christians. Don't be a TBS Christian. Be a CNN Christian, okay? CNN, what's that mean? Well, one thing it can mean is Christ not nobody else. Christ not nobody else. Bad English grammar, right? Yeah. That's okay. <laughs> the Bible's originally written in Hebrew and that's what it says, not in English, so, boom. Okay? Take that. Now, we need to be people that are not doing all that we want to do to be seen by men. That's what hypocrites are. We just do things to be seen by people. I'm going to put this money in the plate. I'm going to do a righteous little act over here. I'm going to help this person. I'm going to tell everybody about it. Look what I did. See, I want everybody to know. CNN, I'm only doing this for Christ to know and nobody else. I don't care if anybody else sees me. I'm doing it because it's right and because Jesus did it first for me. If Jesus healed me, then why shouldn't I go and try to help you? It's all for God's glory. It's, it's so that my light would shine and that people would praise my Father in heaven, not praise me. I get a little uncomfortable when people say, oh, you're a pastor and you do this. And you do this. Someone actually told me this week, you're the most inspiring pastor in the whole world. I was like, have you traveled much? Have you, have you ever been out of this country? Have you ever been out of Chicago? I mean, I don't even buy that. I'm like, whatever. That's just not even me. I'm not the most inspiring. I mean, Joel Osteen's the most inspiring pastor in the world, right? Okay, I'm just joking there. He's got a much bigger church. And so, you know, he's inspiring somebody, I guess. Giving their alms to the poor to be seen. He even says they blow trumpets as they walk down the street to announce that they're coming. They say their prayers really loud and really big so that everyone will know I am righteous to be seen by men. We're all infected with this virus of hypocrisy. It's not just the Pharisees or other people. It it creeps into each of our attempts to be good people. Are church people hypocrites? Yes, often we are. Is our church full of hypocrites? No, look around. There's a couple empty seats up front. There's a few empty seats there. We're not full of hypocrites. We have room for a few more. So invite your friends that are hypocrites. Say, come join us. We're all trying to do what's right. And sometimes we mess up. Sometimes we do it for the wrong motives. But really, when it comes down to it, when we look at the law of God, how Jesus fulfilled it, and how Jesus loves and is patient with his people who break the law... It just makes us want to come back again and again and say, thank you, help me again, this is all for your glory, God. This is what it means to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. It doesn't mean that when you look at the 613 commands, you say, ah, I'm a Christian, I kept 590 of those, and the Pharisee, he only kept 580, so I scored better on the test. It's not what it means. It means it's a whole radical revolution of your life. You're not worried about the outside and the external good deeds, the outside of the cup, the outside of the tomb. You're worried about what's inside, the dirty old moldy food, the rotten bones of the dead person, Jesus said, it's inside that grave. You're worried about your heart. And once you start worrying about your heart and saying, God, take care of my heart. Make it new. Help me to follow you from heart motives that please you. Then it will outflow and overflow to the outside of your life and everyone will see. And you're not trying to get them to see. It just happens that way. And they'll really give glory to God because of your humility and your faithfulness in his name. It's a radical different mindset from the Pharisees. Are you relying on your works, being a good person, or are you relying on the grace of God? That's really the key question. How can your righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees? It's because your righteousness is not even yours. It's not even yours. It's all of God. It's a gift of God. He says, I will make you right with me. Not because you tithe some mint. I mean, what is that? You think that's going to get you in heaven? Because you gave me a. One out of ten pieces of your mint leaf? He says, my son died on the cross for you. And that's all that would take care of your sin. That's all you need. Rely on the grace of God. Not your works. So many of us are worried about ourselves. It's all about myself and me. And and I just learned a new phrase a few weeks ago when I was reading one of our uh, Facebook posts from our church members. Um, She said, hey, I love taking selfies. I was like, What's a selfie? What are you, where are you taking the selfie to, anyway? And then I, I figured it out pretty quickly as I looked at all the pictures of herself on Facebook. It here and over here, and, you know, with a different hairdo over here, and one over there in this room, one in that room, one outside, one downtown, and all these selfies. And I was like, you know, um, so many of us are just. Christian selfies. We're just taking selfies of ourselves all the time. We're just worried about what other people think about us. It's all pointed towards us. How do I look? How do I look now? How do I look now? I did something a little here. I did something better over there. How do I look? Does it look okay to you? Does it look okay to you? I'm really worried about how I look. And Jesus says, no, no. Exceed that. Please go beyond that. Go to the heart level. Let me transform your life. Let me give you a new heart, a new nature. Let me give you a new righteousness that's not even yours. And so when people see you, they'll say, it's not her, it's not him, it's, it's about Christ and what he's done. Finally, verse 19, I'll just cover this very briefly, that there's a certain way we act around the law of God. We get uncomfortable, We start getting a little uptight, or maybe at some point during the sermon you say, oh, there's grace, I heard about grace, so now I can relax a little bit. Well, Jesus says here in verse 19, actually, don't relax yet, okay? Don't relax yet. He does say rest, but don't relax. There's a difference. Back in Matthew chapter five, verse 19, he says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees, they wanted to add extra laws and rituals to faith. We as modern Christians, mostly we like to take away the need to obey the law. And we just say, hey, it's faith alone. Forget the law. Grace. Give me grace. I don't want to think about having to do the right thing and make sacrifices like that. I just I like cutting corners and asking for forgiveness from God because he's so gracious. I like him. But Jesus says, do not relax the law and don't teach others to do it by the way you live. There's two dangers when we think about the road of righteousness that Jesus calls us to. This is the path of kingdom life, a small and narrow road. He says it's very constricting. And he says it's very easy to fall into the ditch on one side or the other. On one side is the ditch that says, forget the law, ignore it, abolish it, run from it, just do what feels right. Oh, you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, so just try to get in tune with God spiritually and forget the word of God, the scriptures, the, the law. Just don't even worry about that. Just say, God, I feel good about this, so I'm going to do it, and that must be right. No, he says, go put your nose back in the law, get back on the middle of the road, and find out what I really said to do. There's the other danger over here. When you start depending on the law so much, you're in this ditch over here where you just become one who trusts in the law. And you, you start holding the law up to other people and saying, you're not keeping the law. I'm going to judge you. I'm going to make you feel bad. I'm going to gossip about you. And so on. And Jesus says there's a better way than leaving the law and there's a better way than depending on the law. It's the middle way of saying Jesus You're the glorious reflection of the law. You've shown me my own sin, how I fall short. Help me to come back to you again and again to live a righteous life. I'm not depending on the law. I'm depending on you alone. I mean, what's the big deal if I give 10% of my money? Is that going to atone for all my sins? Jesus, you alone could do that. Paul says in Galatians, if we could keep the law and find righteousness, then Christ died for nothing. The question, brothers and sisters, is did Christ die for something or not? Did he die on the cross for no good reason? Did he just do it for nothing? Or did he do it because that was the only absolute essential way? Nothing else would do. No law keeping. I don't care how good you are. You've been so screwed up in the past, it doesn't matter. You can be a perfect person from this point forward. Too late. There's only one way that will make you right. The way of the cross of Christ. And in this you can truly rest. You're not relaxing the law. You're not forgetting about it. But you're truly resting in the righteousness that Jesus alone gives you. Take the law seriously. I'm not saying be serious all the time. Have I been serious this whole time? No, but I'm serious about the law of God that we must deal with it. We must face it. We must rally behind the only one who truly kept it and paid the penalty for it, Jesus Christ. And then we must say, I can do this. I can do this through the help of God through the power of a, a new life that he's given me. He's transforming my nature. I'm not asking you to enjoy the law of God and do everything that he if you're just a, a normal person who's never encountered Jesus before. That would be impossible. That would be ridiculous. How would you even want to keep the law? What, what things in here actually do non-Christians like to talk about and highlight? Most of the time they're trying to shred it apart and say, this is ridiculous, all these Old Testament laws, they're invalid, they're unnecessary, they're out of date, Different culture, different time. Pre-enlightenment. This is, these are not modern people. I mean, Does anyone really like the law of God? No. Because it shows us what's wrong with us. But when God comes to you and says, okay, I'm going to give you a whole new appetite, a whole new nature, a whole new life, then He gives you new desires where you actually start hungry and thirsting for righteousness, as Jesus said in Matthew 5. Blessed are the pure in heart. God gives you a pure heart. He puts a new living heart inside of you and takes out the heart of stone. When I was a kid, I had my first taste of beets. When I was at a friend's house, who grew up on a farm, and they grew their own beets, and they served them to me at the table in a pickled form, which did not go over well with me. And I never ate another beet throughout my adult life. About three years ago, my wonderful, beautiful mother-in-law, who's here this morning... (laughs) Amazing woman. She grew some beets in her backyard, and when she put them on the table, and I put my first beet in my mouth for 30 something years, and my teeth sunk into that fleshy, sweet, red beet, I fell in love with beets for the first time. I don't know what she did to that beat, but it got me on a kick, and I started growing beets in my yard up on my rooftop. And that's one of my favorite crops, to harvest the beets. I I plant them. I water them. I care for them. I pull them out. I eat the whole thing, leaf, beet and everything. And I'm a beet evangelist. I try to bring the beets to church on Sunday nights during our dinners. And a few people actually like them. Alex, I think, is one of my dear beet friends. And some of these young guys here had some. And something changed inside of me. I didn't like beets. Some of you don't like them either. I didn't like the law of God. I didn't want to preach about... I didn't want to be a preacher. I didn't want to do this, but God changed me. He's changing you. He's giving you new desires, new tastes for the things that you thought were no good. And he's say, no, no, they're just they're wonderful. Let me help you see how wonderful they are. And so Jesus says, if you love me, in John chapter 14, you will obey my commands. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. But I don't naturally love Jesus. That's okay. That's okay. He's got a plan. He says, I will love you first. I will fulfill the law first. And then I'll ask you to love me and fulfill my commandments. I've got a plan. He says, I've got power. I can change you. I can make this work. He says, I'll give you that new heart. I'll give you a new delight for me, and I would delight like to see my children doing what is right, what is just, what is merciful, what is good and faithful. Brothers and sisters, I'm dead serious about the law today. I'm dead serious about the law of God. I want you to be serious about it. Not to be relaxed about it, but to, to rely and trust and rest in the life-giving grace of God. Dead serious about the law, but so thankful that Jesus Christ has come and died for us, paying the penalty of the law on our behalf And so when we hear the thunder of the law breaking over our heads, booming in our hearts, it would terrify us unless Christ wouldn't come and just transpose that into a higher key and say, I'm going to show you the beautiful symphony of my salvation. I'm going to take the law itself, the thing you fear, the thing you don't love, and I'm going to make that part of your life. Part of my love song to you. Part of my song of salvation. I'll close with this quote from John Bunyan. The old... Puritan that wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, one of the most widely read books of all time. John Bunyan looked at the law and he saw how far short he fell of it. He looked at the grace of God, how beautiful and lovely it was. And this is what he said. Run, John, run, the law demands. But gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly gives me wings. The law can't change you, but God can. And He will give you feet and hands and wings to keep His commandments today. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, even for Your law. We thank You most of all for Jesus, who came and showed us the perfect revelation of the law, who took lawbreakers like us and still lovingly paid for our penalty. By dying for us, and now by raising up again, He's given us the hope of new life, new power. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, which makes us new people who might actually love to keep your commandments. Thank you, Jesus, for fulfilling your law, and thank you for what you're doing to help us day after day to fulfill it as well. We ask this in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.